Every story, of course, consists of a cast of characters, and there are five characters to look at in this story. First, we have the king of Israel, Ahab, and the book of 1 Kings describes Ahab this way. Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. If you've watched Game of Thrones, if you've read books about fantastic ancient civilizations, you'll know that kings and queens will sometimes marry certain people to form political alliances. And Ahab entered into one of those alliances by marrying a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel is our second main character. Jezebel was a Sidonian. Uh, the Sidonian's kingdom was, was north of Israel. And as Jezebel traveled south, she brought her Sidonian gods with her, including Baal, our third main character. Baal is spelled B-A-A-L, but it can be pronounced, I've heard it pronounced Baal, Baal, or Baal. I'll probably use all three pronunciations. Um, the word Baal means to own, to rule, to possess. Baal can be translated as master or lord. He was worshipped as a god of fertility, farming, and cattle. Baal provided rain to enable crops to grow so that people could eat and animals could have nourishment. He also gave off light and warmth. But sometimes he would give off a little too much heat and he would destroy the crops he helped grow so his followers would sometimes sacrifice their children to appease him. And when you think of Baal, you need need to think of Zeus, who was the head of the Greek pantheon. Uh, Baal became the head of the Canaanite pantheon. And as a brief aside, Canaan is um, a subsection of what we would call today the Middle East. And Israel was a part of this subsection. So think about Canaan the same way you would think about the DMV, a subsection of the Mid-Atlantic United States. In ending our look at Baal, we need to remember this about him. He is a competitor for divine supremacy in Israel. His main competition, of course, is the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, as Jesus called him. For our story, there are two things we need to remember about our fourth character, the Lord. He does not share well with other gods. And two, even though Israel has turned, his back, turned its back on him by worshiping Baal, he has not turned his back on Israel. He is sending people into Israel, trying to wake up the people there. And one of those prophets he sends is Elijah, our final main character. So if, if you like the Marvel movies, if you've watched them, you can kind of understand at some point that when a new character is introduced, there's always an origin story, right? So for example, the first Iron Man movie was about how Iron Man became Iron Man. I'm not saying Marvel ripped off the Bible when it came up with the concept of the origin story, but in the Bible you will find origin stories all over the place about the main characters that, that you read of. So for example, there was an origin story about Moses. And of course, the most famous origin story of all told in Matthew, Luke, and John about Jesus. But even though Elijah was with Jesus and with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, another story in the Gospels. We have no origin story on Elijah. We know he's, he's, a, he's a Tishbite, but in researching this story, archaeologists don't know for certain where Tishba actually is. 
We don't know anything about his parents. We don't know how he became a prophet in the first place. He just drops out of the sky into Israel like a bolt of lightning. The one thing we do know about Elijah is that his name means, my God is Yahweh. All right, so that's the end of the background. Hopefully it helps you. By the way, the word of the day is polemic. Polemic. All right. Without further ado, we are going to jump into the abridged story of the contest at Mount Carmel. This takes place in the book 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. And uh, we do have the verses uh, up here on the screen. By the way, I was... I wanted to tell this story, but then I screwed up the intro. I was in the bathroom when we lost power at the church. And so the fact I don't have a mic is okay, because that's better than not having power. So that's the way I'm looking at it. Okay, here's the story. Now Elijah, who is from Tishba in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. So the writer of the contest at Mount Carmel tells us right away that the Lord, through Elijah, is the one who controls rain. Remember, the followers of Baal believed he is the one who controls rain. Back to the text. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. So with this passage, we are introduced to the specific location of this contest, which is, of course, Mount Carmel. And, and this Mount Carmel could be considered friendly territory, both for the Sidonians and the Israelites, because it's kind of on that shared border of the Israelites and Sidonians. So this is like if the Baltimore Ravens and the Washington football team played in the same stadium in Anne Arundel County, and then they were to play a game against each other, it would be like a shared home field. So think about the contest in Mount Carmel as that, in that way, a shared home field in a contest between two gods. Along with Baal, this passage also mentions the prophets of Asherah. Asherah was a goddess in the Canaanite pantheon. And during uh, King Ahab's reign in Israel, Asherah actually became a romantic companion of the Lord. But remember, the Lord does not share well with other gods. Back to the text. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. At this time, the people of Israel had accepted this, this mix, this cocktail of deities that they could worship. It was okay to worship a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Asherah, a little bit of the Lord. 
But Elijah is telling the people of Israel, the worship of a God is not multiple choice. They had to pledge loyalty to one God. Uh, the Hebrew here for hobbling between two opinions could be translated as limping around on two crutches. This is, think of this as an ancient cliche to describe Israelite indecision about which God is supreme. Back to the text. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bowls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. So Elijah here says that he's the only prophet of the Lord left. This is due to Jezebel basically hunting down and killing the remaining prophets. Those who escape Jezebel are in hiding and aren't actually doing any prophesying. Most likely, Jezebel hunted down and killed the prophets because she saw them as a threat. They weren't willing to embrace her idea of the Canaanite pantheon, and she saw them as a threat to her political authority and, Ahab, and Ahab's as well. Also in this passage, Elijah lays out the rules of the contest. The Baal prophets would have a chance to call on their god of light to send fire to the altar and show himself as the superior god. And Elijah didn't just make this up suddenly. Fire had a strong uh, symbolism attached to divine presence. So think about Moses and the burning bush. Think about the book of Acts uh, during Pentecost. We see fire in both of those stories, both representing divine presence. So fire would have a significant symbolic power for those who saw it in our story. And, and finally, the people of Mount Carmel agreed that this was a fair contest. Okay, back to the text. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming, or perhaps he is relieving himself. <laughs> yes, there is Bible, there is uh, bathroom humor in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and followed their normal custom. They cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there is no sound, no reply, no response. So the New Living Translation, which, we, which I chose today, um, says that Elijah is mocking Baal for going to the bathroom. Uh, not every translation says that, but... Honestly, I just couldn't pass up the chance to talk about <laughs> a god taking a dump and Elijah mocking him for it. So I'm sorry about that. Um, please forgive me. But the point is, no matter what the translation, um, Elijah is mocking Baal 
And his prophets would probably answer back and say, well, he's asleep right now. You see, every time throughout the year, Baal would basically go down into the underworld and the prophets would have to try to wake him up. The Canaanite gods slept and they ate food and they married like human beings. The Lord did no such thing in the Old Testament. So the prophets of Baal, they're getting desperate to wake up their supreme God and to bring him up from the underworld. So they start cutting themselves in the hopes of getting Baal's attention. But he would not answer. By the way, the word of the day is polemic. The word of the day is polemic. Back to the text. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. So they all crowded around him as we repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Elijah is stacking the, the deck against himself because anyone who's gone camping in the rain or snow will tell you how hard it is to start a fire with wet wood. Now, this passage also makes mention of Elijah repairing the altar of God, an altar that was probably destroyed when Jezebel was, was persecuting the prophets of the Lord. And as the text says, the 12 stones were symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel who were then in disunion and possibly symbolized Elijah's hope that they would one day be reunified under the Lord. Let's go back to the text. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people sobbed, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Let's, look, let's take a look at the last part of that passage first, because this is one of those parts of the Old Testament that's a little cringeworthy, right? I mean, you win this contest and then you slaughter the loser. It's, it can seem obviously harsh and brutal. Um, in, in preparing for this series, uh, for this sermon, I've... I've utilized the Tyndale commentary, and I bring that up because it's a really good entry-level commentary if you want to begin strengthening your, your Bible study. And so the writer of that commentary for First and Second Kings, Donald Weissman, writes this about the killing of Baal's prophets. 
slaughter of Baal's prophets was not an act of wanton cruelty, but the necessary retribution against false prophets as decreed in the book of Deuteronomy. Christians view idolatry as no less sinful, but see total judgment as reserved for the final day. If we trust that God is a God of justice, we trust that he'll lift up the oppressed, we trust he'll protect the innocent, and we also trust that he will rightly punish the guilty. The good news is, God shows throughout the Old Testament that he is eager to forgive the guilty if they acknowledge their guilt and return to him. So when we wrestle with a passage like this, which is totally okay and totally understandable, and we should wrestle with it, along the way we must also consider how patient and forgiving God is. As a matter of fact, the story of the contest of Mount Carmel in and of itself is an example of God's patience with those who are guilty of betraying him, the Israelites. And then we go to Elijah's prayer. And Elijah's prayer, he himself is reminding the people there and reminding God of, of his faithfulness to the people of Israel by recalling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he isn't only asking for a miracle, but for that miracle to help people realize that the Lord is supreme. And when fire consumes the altar, revealing the power of the Lord, the people witnessing the contest at Mount Carmel acknowledge that the Lord is the superior God over Baal. So as we get into this, as we go further into the story, we, we find out that rain falls on Israel, this drought that God brought, that the Lord brought about is, is ending. And it seems like we're on our way to a happy story, but let's get back to the text. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you, just as you killed them. When he heard this, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. To me, this passage is stunning. Elijah orchestrates this incredible display of God's power, and soon thereafter, Elijah asks God to kill him. We'll be looking more at this part of the story a little later. And, and there is so much more to the story of Elijah that we can't get into, and so uh, there's plenty more for you to tackle if you want to know anything else that happens to Elijah in First and Second Kings. But now we've got to move on to the takeaways of this story. What can we get out of the contest at Mount Carmel? And, and to set that up, I would like to just remind us of what Kenny has said about this series, More Stories We Tell. The stories of the Bible are really stories about three essential things. Who God is, how things are, and what we are designed to be. So with this premise in mind, let's look at the four takeaways. First off, let's tackle the word of the day, polemic. Uh, the simplest, most straightforward definition that I found about polemic went like this. A strong verbal or written attack on someone or something. A strong verbal or written attack 
on someone or something. Back over 50 years ago, a Jewish scholar named Leah Bronner wrote a book called The Stories of Elijah and Elisha as Polemics Against Baal Worship. And the premise of the book went like this. The story of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, can be described as a struggle to destroy the heathen deities of the ancient world and to replace their worship by the belief in the one God. Therefore, the story of the contest at Mount Carmel can be regarded as a polemic, attacking Baal and arguing that Baal is inferior to the Lord. This story tells us clearly the Lord is superior to other gods, and he is not interested in sharing humanity with them. This leads us to our second takeaway from the contest at Mount Carmel. The choice of gods we all make is a choice with serious consequences for our lives. The choice of gods we all make is a choice with serious implications for our lives. But when you start to think about it, that can seem like a false choice, right? Because none of us here, correct me if I'm wrong, have ever had to choose between the Lord God and Baal, right? I mean, I've never made that choice. I don't know of anyone who's made that choice. And we live in a free society where we can choose any God we want. We can choose no God at all, which is a good thing, right? Like, we don't want to be you know, a Christian in countries like Nigeria and Iran where Christians are persecuted, or a country like China, which is also persecuting Christians, and religious minorities like the Uyghur Muslims. But, nonetheless, the story of the contest at Mount Carmel is clear. We must choose one God. In the New Testament, Jesus describes a similar choice during the Sermon on the Mount. He says we can't serve both God and money. So for me, I've got to decide, am I going to follow Jesus and serve him with whatever money I receive by supporting revolution, by giving to the poor, by supporting those Christians who are persecuted? Or am I going to put my faith in money as the superior God that provides for my needs and my wants over the Lord? So even today, without Baal being a serious option, the God we choose has serious consequences for our lives. Our third takeaway is this. We can be the most powerful prophet alive and still despair. As we said before, Elijah orchestrates this incredible display of God's power, and soon thereafter, he's asking God to kill him. And when I was going over this part of the story, I, I hearkened back to Kenny's sermon series from a couple months ago when he was talking about the fallout from the pandemic. And when you start to look at statistics, you see the increase in drug overdoses, you see more depression, social isolation obviously increasing, and perhaps one's desire to die also increased during the pandemic. And of course, just when we thought this whole thing was ending, We've got the Delta variant, and we're wearing masks in the church. Considering all of this, I think it's pretty easy to see how Elijah could be in the place that he was, and how he could ask God, take my life. And I want to say that 
If you're in Elijah's place right now, thinking that death is better than life, I would just humbly request that you consider reaching out to Ken. Reach out to a lay leader. Reach out to someone here you trust. Because you're not going to be condemned. You're going to be embraced. And you can find encouragement, I think, in Elijah's story. Because if you do continue to read First and Second Kings, you'll know that the Lord did not kill him. But he gave Elijah a special place in his kingdom. And if you go to the Gospels and read about the transfiguration, you're going to see Elijah, this prophet who asked God to kill him, is right there with Moses and Jesus. So if you are in a similar place of despair like Elijah, maybe, well, I think definitely, while the road will be hard, I think God can rescue us from that despair. One last takeaway. The contest in Mount Carmel gives us reason to hope that following the Lord is the right choice. I know for me, over the past couple of days, I started to think about this message and I started to doubt it like, is this going to come off as some sort of judgy, fire and brimstone, choose Jesus or die sort of thing? Like, do I want people to feel like they're going to die like the prophets of Baal if, if they don't follow Jesus? And I certainly don't want to communicate that. But at the same time, I didn't want to water down what I think the story was saying. The story of the contest in Mount Carmel makes it quite clear that there is a right choice in what God we serve. And yes, it is clear that God is a God of justice and he will punish those he deems guilty. So it would be easy to not see hope in this story amidst the drought and amidst the killing of the prophets and the despair of Elijah. But I think there is hope to be found in this story. And it's the same kind of hope we find when we take communion every week, which we're going to do in a couple of minutes. During communion, we're going to remember how God sent Jesus to earth, like he sent fire in our story. And this, this arrival by Jesus is tangible evidence of the Lord's greatness. But also, it speaks to God's desperation to reconcile with us. Even us who choose inferior gods over him, he wants to come close to us and be with us. And if God is as desperate to be with us as he claims to be during the contest at Mount Carmel and through the sending of his son to his death, then I think we can have hope that when we choose to follow the Lord, we're making the right choice.